All right. Amen. Take your Bibles out this morning and uh, let's open them together to the 11th chapter of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to continue today in this great chapter, this great roll call of faith. And uh, we're going to talk about one of the great heroes of faith. And uh, what I am entitling or what I'm calling the insanity of faith. And I've actually stolen that title. Back in 1983, uh, a a uh, young couple, uh, Nick and Ruth Ripkin, were appointed by our International Mission Board to Malawi uh, in East Africa. And they went there as missionaries. They served there for about seven years. Uh, and they saw quite a bit of fruit in Malawi, uh, but they uh, had some problems there. And one of the big problems was the climate, in particular the mosquitoes and uh, uh, malaria. In fact, their youngest son contracted malaria and almost died uh, from it. And uh, finally, because of the, the problems with the health, their health living in Malawi, they were finally advised they had to leave. They had to go somewhere else. And so the, uh, in 1991, the International Mission Board uh, reassigned them to Kenya. And uh, in 91, uh, Somalia, which is just north of Kenya, was experiencing a uh, civil war. And a lot of refugees, Somali refugees, were coming across the border into Kenya. And so Nick and Ruth were assigned there to Kenya to work with these Somali refugees. And they began to do that. And for the next six years or so, they, uh, they served the people of uh, Somalia in Kenya. They uh, did a lot of, uh, of, uh, of refugee-type work and providing food and shelter and those type of things and sharing the gospel. Now, Somalia, uh, by and large, is a Muslim country, and most of the people that were coming across the border were Muslim. And they found, um, uh, they found the work among the Somalis in terms of gospel uh, response. They found it very sparse. After six years, they had six converts. And uh, towards the end of that time, these, these six decided that they needed to go back together to Somalia to, uh, to share the gospel with their people back in their homeland. The, the Civil War was over, and things were clearing up just a little bit uh, back in Somalia. And in about 95 <coughs> or 96, uh, these six men went back to Somalia. Within a month, all six of them were dead. All six of them had been killed. And about the same time, they were killed because of their faith in Christ. And about the same time, Nick and Ruth's youngest son, who had had problems with uh, malaria and the things that that had brought on from Malawi, uh, their youngest son actually had a, uh, 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 an episode with, um, what's the breathing thing? Um, asthma, and he died suddenly, 16 years old. They lost their 16-year-old boy. Now, they were heartbroken, not just the loss of their son at all. It devastated them, of course, but, but also uh, the death of these six men they had, that they had served and worked for so long to see them come to Christ and then to have them go back to their homeland and just very suddenly and ruthlessly be killed. And the question that, that Nick says he began to ask himself was, is it worth it to to follow Jesus? Is it worth it to be faithful to Jesus? I mean, you know, because you think about it, these six men would not have been killed if they had not given their lives to Christ Jesus. 
and their own son would still be alive if Nick and Ruth had not followed Jesus to Africa, believing that he had called them to go there. And, and the fact that they were there and what had happened in uh, his life was because of their faithfulness to Christ. And really the question becomes, is it worth it to follow Jesus? They actually came back to the United States and they went through a time of soul searching in which they asked themselves that question. The, the mission board asked them to uh, then take another assignment, which was to, to go into the hard places in the world and find out what it takes to follow Christ in the most difficult places. Because beloved Christians are being persecuted all across this globe. And uh, because of their faith in Christ. And, you know, if you think about it, if, if someone were to come to you and put a gun to your head and say, if you profess faith in Jesus Christ, I'm going to pull the trigger and kill you. Is it worth it to profess faith in Christ if you're going to lose your life that way? Is it worth it to, to, to follow Jesus? And, and they asked themselves this question. They went around and they interviewed believers who were serving Jesus, sometimes under the threat of their own life, under persecution in places like Russia and former Soviet Union and China and, and uh, other places where, uh, where Muslims are in a majority and they are severely persecuting believers. They, they, they uh, interviewed uh, hundreds, scores of, of believers who were serving Christ in the hardest places, and they ultimately wrote a couple of books about this. The first book they entitled The Insanity of God, and it actually was a, a, a title that when you first hear it, you're going, wait a minute, that's not right. <laughs> Something's not right. I mean, God's not insane, right? But they didn't mean that God was insane. They meant that people who follow God look like they're insane. The second book out of this, and the subtitle was Following Jesus in the Hard Places. The title of the book was The Insanity of Obedience. And really what they were talking about was the insanity of faith, that, that it really does look crazy from a world view a worldview that makes everything about us individually, it's crazy to follow Christ when you might very well lose your life and probably will lose your life. They interviewed countless scores of people that were living under the threat of imminent death simply because their faith in Jesus Christ. And you know, if you look at it from a world perspective, it doesn't make sense to follow Jesus in those places and they ask themselves the question if people think you're crazy for following Jesus if if you look crazy because of your faith in Jesus Christ and you do things simply because God said he told me to do it I mean it would kind of like and maybe uh, we have a hard time uh, uh, you know, relating to that because probably most of us would say, well, you know, uh, yeah, it's worth it to follow Jesus, right? Although nobody's stuck a gun to our head or we've never had to face that type of persecution. But what if, you know, you're sitting there minding your own business one day and you have, a, you have this relationship with God in Christ and God speaks to you, he reveals himself to you and he says, hey, this is what I want you to do. I want you to leave your home. I want you to leave everything. Just pack up and leave and I want you to start 
walking with me. We're going to go to a different place now. And you might say, well, okay, God, where are we going to go? And, and what if the Lord said, well, I'm not going to tell you where. We just start walking. And when we get there, I'll let you know. And, and I'll just go ahead and tell you, it's going to be a lot better at some point, but you're probably going to go through a lot of tribulation and heartache and trial. It's going to be bad, but I'm going to take care of you, and I'm going to be faithful to you. I just want you to follow me. I wonder how many of us wouldn't have any problem at all just leaving everything behind and just going with God if he didn't tell us where we were going to go or what we were going to do or how we were going to get there or if it was going to be bad. And, and most of us might say, well, you know, God's really not going to do that, right? The Lord would never really come to somebody like me and tell me that I need to become uncomfortable or he wants to make me uncomfortable in some way just to follow him, right? I mean, God wouldn't do that. <laughs> well, he has, <laughs> and he does. And ultimately, it's, it's a question of faith. I think sooner or later, it's a question that every child of God, every believer has to ask himself, am I going to follow God even when it doesn't make sense and people say I'm crazy. The example for us here in the 11th chapter of Hebrews today is a fellow by the name of Abraham. Now you'll read his story beginning in the last part of the 11th chapter of Genesis going all the way through Genesis chapter 25. Abraham is one of the most important individuals in all the Bible. He's the father of the Jewish people. He's also the father of the Muslim people too because he gave, uh, he fathered Ishmael and he fathered Isaac. And he is kind of the epitome of faith. He's the guy who walked with God when it didn't make a whole lot of sense. And just a little bit of background about Abraham before I read the text. He, he came from a place called Ur of the Chaldees. Now Ur has been, the, the ruins of Ur have been found by archaeologists down in the southern part of what is modern day Iraq, down uh, towards, uh, 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 towards where the uh, Euphrates River is going to end up dumping into the, um, the Saudi Arabian Gulf. And uh, it was a major, major city. During the time of Abraham, uh, it was a humongous uh, a metropolitan area. And evidently, Abraham, when he lived there, uh, he was very well-to-do. He, uh, uh, he evidently was very successful. He was a businessman. He, uh, you know, lived in this major, major city, and he conducted all his business. And one day, God came to him and said, hey, I'm going to take you on a journey and I want you to go with me, and I want you to follow me. And uh, Abraham obeyed. Abraham went with God, because what does faith do? Faith sees God, hears God, obeys God. And so Abraham, in his relationship with God, God having spoken to him, he got out on the road. And after about 2,500 miles of journeying with God, he ends up in a little backwater place called the land of Canaan. And to compare the land of Canaan with Ur of the Chaldees would be kind of like comparing New York, uh, New York City with Brazoria, Texas, right? <laughs> I mean, it would be about the same difference and maybe about the same distance. From New York City to Brazoria, Texas, here comes Abraham. And God, when he gets there, God says, hey, I'm going to give you all this land. Problem was, 
He didn't own any of it, number one. And then God said, I'm going to give it to all your descendants. And the problem there was, of course, he didn't have no kids, right? And at this point, he was a 75-year-old man. And I want you to see what the writer of Hebrews says about this man of faith. Verse 8 in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age, since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. Therefore, from one man, in fact, from one as good as dead. Here's the crazy part. From one as good as dead came offspring, as numerous as the stars of the sky, and as as innumerable innumerable as the grains of sand along the seashore. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now again, let me just remind you, faith, and faith is defined for us back in uh, uh, verse 1 of chapter 11, is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of that which is not seen. Faith is seeing God. Faith is hearing God. Faith is obeying God. You're never going to see God without faith. You're never going to hear God apart from faith. You're never going to obey God except by faith. So faith is not just believing something about God. Faith is taking what you understand or you know about God or by God and then acting upon it, okay? So that is the uh, uh, that is what faith is. Faith is not just believing something, and it's not just what some people call blind faith. I heard, uh, uh, I heard a debate one time between a preacher and an atheist, and uh, they were debating the reality of God or the existence of God. And finally, the atheist said, you know, the problem with you Christians is, is y'all just take stuff by blind faith. He said, you can't prove that God exists. You just believe it by faith. And the preacher said, well, you know, that's right. But, you know, quite honestly, you and I aren't too, much, too different. He said, I can't prove that God exists and you can't prove that he doesn't exist. I take the fact that God exists by faith. You take the fact that he doesn't exist by faith. Our faith almost is exactly the same, just in opposite directions. And that really is the reality. Faith is not just believing something. It's staking your whole life on it and living it out. Obeying God. And beloved, we live in a world that does not accept the reality of God. It looks to a whole lot of other things besides God for reality. And you know, the, the, the truth is, is that many people who call themselves believers or Christians act the same way. You can't really tell any difference between a lot of Christians and non-Christians. To most people in this world, people of faith, people who actually not only believe something about God, but stake their life on it and live it, for most people in this world today, that's crazy. It looks absolutely like insanity. But beloved, it's not crazy. It's faith. And that's what I want to just share with you. Three things about Abraham today. I want you to see how this works out in our life. All right. Under that title, the insanity of faith or 
It's not crazy. It's faith. Number one, to go with God when you don't know where. It's not crazy. It's faith to go with God when you don't know where you're going. You know, it says here in that uh, eighth verse that by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed, and he set up for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went, even though he didn't know where he was going. Now, I want to point out to you, first of all, that Abraham had a relationship with God at this point. How did he come into this relationship with God? We don't know. It wasn't that Abraham was just... Uh, you know, sitting around one day. By the way, uh, Ur of the Chaldees was a very pagan city. It was a polytheistic culture in which Abraham grew up with and in which he lived. And polytheism means that you believe in a whole bunch of different gods. And Ur had all kinds of different gods. This was the world in which Abraham grew up in. But at some point, some place in his life, he came to understand or to believe that there was just one God and uh, this one God was the creator of everything, and this one God had a claim on his life. And so Abraham related to this one God, and he related to him by faith. When God called Abraham, Abraham was already walking with God. He already had a relationship with God. And that's why, and, and by the way, he could see God by his faith. That's why he heard God. He heard God by faith. How did Abraham come to know God? We don't know. We're not told. But I, will, I, I do think that we can say about him that all of his contemporaries thought he was crazy. He was nuts for believing in one God, for organizing his life around that God and believing that that God had a claim upon his life and then obeying what that God said to do. How did he come to know God? I don't know, except at some point, God invaded his space. Let me just pause here and ask you this question. How did you come to know God? I mean, we're living in just as pagan a world as Abraham did. We're living in just a polytheistic world as he is. There's plenty of gods out there that people give their life to. And people who claim that there is no God but God and Jesus is his name. We just sing songs about that. People like you and me who call on the name of the Lord Jesus, we are considered to be crazy in this world today. You are absolutely lunatic. You're a nut to believe this stuff. That's just the way the world goes. How did you come to know this God? Well, I don't know about you. It might have been that you grew up in a Christian home. Maybe your parents drug you to church when you were a kid, or maybe you went to vacation Bible school one time, or maybe a neighbor came over and talked to you. Or so, how, does God, how does God make himself known to anybody? I heard a story about a guy one time. He was just driving down the road. He's giving his testimony. He was lost as a goose, he said, and I just saw a sign on the side of the road that said, God loved you. Somebody put up some kind of sign, and he said immediately, man, it just fell all over me. I knew that God was real, and I knew I needed to know him. He saw a little church. He just pulled up there. Somebody happened to be there. He went on, knocked on the door. The guy opened the door. He went in and said, man, I need to know this God. And the guy witnessed to him, and he came to faith in Jesus Christ that day. How did you come to know faith? How did you come to know God? How did you come to faith in God? I'll tell you, whatever happened, God somehow, someway was active. He may have invaded your space, but he revealed himself to you. And somehow, someway, by faith, you responded to him.
And if you are a person of faith, if you have a relationship with the living God, that is an active and dynamic thing. It's not just a, I think I'll go to church on Sunday type gig. Knowing God personally and intimately means we're on a journey with him. It is a living, active uh, thing called faith, I guess. I don't know. So, so here's Abraham, just minding his own business and Ur of the Chaldees in a relationship with the living God. And one day God calls him and says, hey, I want you to go on a journey with me. We're going to go a little bit further than we've ever gone before. And the Bible says that, that um, uh, Abraham, he began to follow. By, by the way, you know, I, I mentioned that it's kind of crazy, you know, People look at people like you and me as crazy people. Do you know a lot of Christians look at us kind of crazy? In fact, a lot of Christians don't really even understand the things and the ways of God. I mean, when we read stuff like deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus, do you know that doesn't make any sense whatsoever to a majority of believers today? Do you know, to hear Jesus speak to a rich young ruler and, and who says, man, I just want to know you. I want to know, I want eternal life. And Jesus says, okay, well, I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to get rid of everything in your life that comes between you and God. So give it all away, sell it, and then, and then come follow me. Do you know that thought is absolutely foreign to most of us, that's absolutely crazy. That's what happened to Abraham. God spoke to him. And what God said, you know, didn't make sense uh, uh, from a worldly perspective. And he said, hey, um, I, I want you to, to go on a journey with me. And you know what's really interesting? It says here in the last part of this eighth verse that uh, he didn't know where he was going. Now, if you're on a journey and you don't know where you're going, what do you call that? Yeah, lost. I think I'd call it lost, man. Now, I know for all of us guys in here, there, no man has ever been lost. Men, are never, ne men never get lost, do we? We might not know where we're at, but we don't get lost. But you know the thing about most men, I, I, at least let me just tell you about myself, I want to know where I'm going, how I'm going to get there. You know, back in the day, we had in our car something called a road map, right? Anybody remember road maps? Y'all remember that? You know, those things, you unfold them, and man, and you know, you got the road map of Texas, for example, the United States, and it had all the roads on it. And I could say, okay, I'm right here, and that's where I want to be, and this is where I need to go. When Donna and I were, uh, were younger than we are now, we were still in the Navy. The eight years I spent in the Navy, we moved across country five different times. We belonged to an organization called AAA, okay? American Automobile Association, not AAAAA, -A -A -A, all right? And, um, and they had a really cool service. You could uh, call them up on the phone. You could say, hey, this is where I'm at, and that's where I want to go. I want to go to Orlando, Florida, for example. And, uh, and in a week or so, they would send you a book, and on each page of that book, there were maps, and they had it all drawn out. And they would say, you get on the road, and you go down this road, and you go so many miles, and then you exit off here. I mean, you could see where you were, and you could see where you're going. And, you know, anybody that has any sense whatsoever, if you're going to go on a journey, you got to know where you are. You want to know where you're going. And we want that thing mapped out. Nowadays, we don't have maps anymore. 
anymore. Why? Because I've got a phone in my pocket that knows where everything is. I still can't figure this thing out, but, but it knows where I'm at, and it knows where I want to go. And so I just tell it, where do I want to go? And man, it, it, but you know the thing about that phone, I hold it in my hand, and it starts talking to me. And you guys have heard me say before, you know, I, I really don't like the voice on it because I don't need two women in the car telling me how to drive. But, <laughs> hush, sorry, honey. Um, but you know, the thing about that is, is it just gives you a little bit at a time, right? I mean, it just says, okay, you know, start down this road and here in a mile and a half, you're going to take this exit. And, and then you just have to look at, you don't, you can't see the end. You just have to trust that it knows where you are and it knows where you're going. That's faith. That's faith. God says, I tell you what, you don't have to know where you're going because I know where you're going. You just have to trust me. You just have to get going with me, and you have to follow me. And so, so, you know, while on my phone I've got something called GPS, that's Global Positioning System, Abraham had something called GPS, God Positioning System, and this is faith. Going with God when you don't know where you're going. Sometimes you may know, sometimes you may not know. God doesn't always feel like that he has to tell you. But you know what? When you're going with God and you don't really know where you're going to end up, it looks crazy to everybody else. I spent eight years in the Navy, and, um, and when I joined the Navy, I joined because I needed a job. People thank me for my service, but, I mean, I really didn't have any, any great, you know, love of country motives for joining the military. I just needed a job. I wanted to get married. I knew that we couldn't live with her folks or my folks. They weren't going to, I was going to have to work and I didn't know how to do anything. And the Navy said they would take me and they would uh, teach me something. So I went into the nuclear power program and they did. They taught me a lot. And I had great plans and visions for my life. I was going to get all this training and then I was going to get out of the Navy and I was going to go to work for one of these uh, uh, nuclear power plants and I was going to make all kinds of money and have a wonderful, happy life, you know, because that's what it takes to have a wonderful, happy life, right? It's a whole bunch of money and a great job and all this. And the Navy gave me all that training. Somewhere along the line, I spent eight years in the Navy and somewhere. Uh, in that Navy journey, and I had everything all planned out, you know, when I was going to get out. Somewhere along the way, God got a hold of my life. I was sent back to, um, uh, to Idaho Falls, Idaho, as an instructor at a, nuclear, a naval nuclear power facility there. And while I was instructing there, Donna and I were very active in our, our local church there, and they needed a youth uh, leader, and so we began to lead youth. And then uh, somebody else came along to lead the youth, and we... Uh, began to take those who were graduating, and now we had a college and career class, and we started that ministry there in the church. And somewhere along the line, God just spoke, and, and I heard God you know, calling me to, uh, to ministry. Didn't know what that was, didn't know how that was going to work out. I was getting close to getting out of the Navy, and, and uh, we uh, believed that, that we needed to get out and go to school because I knew I, I didn't know nothing, and so I needed some, some schooling about God, Jesus, the Bible, all that other stuff. And so we enrolled at Hardin-Simmons University in Abilene. And uh, I was going to go there and study the Bible and everything. Well, right as I was discharging from the Navy, uh, in order, I'd been in eight years, and uh, I was an E-6. I was a first-class petty officer. And in order to, to get out, you have to have uh, some different signatures on a, 
on a separation form. I, don't, I guess that's what it's called. One of those signatures was from the senior enlisted man on our base. He was a master chief. This master chief had been in the Navy for, you know, God knows how long, 100 years or whatever. He was crusty. He was salty. I'd had some run-ins with him. He was very vain and profane and vulgar. And I had to get his signature on this form before I could get out. And I didn't want to go see him because I knew what was going to happen. It was his job to try to keep me in the Navy. And he was going to pressure me and talk to me. And he was going to try to get me to reenlist. That's his job. And I knew it was going to be ugly because I knew I wasn't going to. And so why go see him? The day before I got out, July the 11th, 1985, my supervisor came to me. We're, I'm wrapping everything up, and he says, look, if you don't go see the master chief and get his signature, you're not getting out of the night. You understand that, right? So you need to go see him. So I make an appointment. I go over. I walk into his office. I sit down. And the master chief goes through his spiel. It takes him about 30, 40 minutes. He tells me what a good job I, I, I've done and what a great uh, opportunity I have in the Navy and how much money I'm going to make and everything, all the benefits, and how, just how wonderful the Navy was and why I need to reenlist and all this other stuff. And uh, so he finishes his spiel. He says, okay, how about it? I said, well, master chief, really appreciate all that, but no, I'm going to go ahead and get out. He said, uh, well, you're going to have to work. What are, you got a job? I said, no, sir, I don't have a job. He said, what are you going to do? you got to support your family. I said, well, <laughs> honestly, I don't know. Uh, I'm going to go to college. He said, you're going to go to college. He said, uh, are you enrolled in college? Yes, sir. I, I didn't say sir. You don't say master, sir to master. I said, yes, Master Chief, I am enrolled. What college are you enrolled in? Hardin-Simmons University in Abilene, Texas. Hardin-Simmons, he said. I never heard of that place. What is that? What kind of school is that? I said, well, Master Chief, it's a, it's a Baptist school. I'm going to go there, and I'm going to study the Bible, and um, I'm going to become a preacher. And the Master Chief, I'll never forget the look on his face. The first look was he thought I was yanking his chain. He, he, he just, you know, he, he didn't, that didn't make any sense. Didn't, he didn't believe that. And then his, when he realized that I was serious, his look kind of turned from, from incredulous to, to anger to finally disgust. Here, here's a guy that, that things like faith and trusting God and following him and not knowing what, how it's going to come out. How am I going to feed my family? I don't know. All I know is God's calling me and I got to go. And that's what I'm going to do. That makes no sense. You're crazy. He signed that paper, threw it across. Get out of my office, he said. And I did. And we've been trying to follow God ever since. Beloved, a world is going to look at you when you go with God and you don't know where you're going. And they're going to say you're crazy. But it's not crazy. It's faith. It's faith. And I just wonder, are you going with God anywhere that... You're not really sure that everybody else would look at it and say, man, that's just nuts. It's not crazy. It's faith when you stay with God and you don't have a place. When you go with God and you don't know where, but when you stay with God and you don't have a place. Look down at verse 9. In verse 9, I'm going to hurry up here. In verse 9, it says, by faith he stayed as a foreigner. See that word foreigner? That word foreigner means somebody on the outside 
somebody who doesn't belong. It says he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents. A tent is a temporary residence. You know why Abraham lived in a tent? He lived in a tent because he didn't own any property. If he had built a building, he would have been building a, or a house, he would have been building a house on somebody else's land, and they would have either killed him and taken away from him, or they certainly would have run, it off, run him off and taken it away from him because it wasn't his. It didn't belong to him. He didn't belong anywhere in that place. And he gets there, and he pitches a tent. They let him live in a tent because the tent say, uh, says, I'm not going to be here that long. I'm just passing through. He gets there, he pitches his tent, and God says, hey, you look around. This is called the land of Canaan. Son, I'm going to give you this land. I'm giving you the land of Canaan. Let me tell you something. At that time, it didn't look a whole lot. <laughs> well, it didn't look very good. But I can see old Abraham sitting there one night, and Sarah, they're around the campfire out in front of the tent. And there's Sarah, and there's Lot. And old Abraham, he's just talking about, the Lord and what God has done. And he says, y'all see all this land around here? This is going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. He says, I see houses that all of our, our family and our descendants are living in. I see roads. and I see buildings. I see cities. I see God because God has promised me this land. And old Lot looks over at Sarah. And that's an old woman right there, by the way. And they don't have any kids. And they don't own the land they're standing on. They own nothing. And you can imagine old Lot going, I mean, when they separated, it was because Lot needed to get away from this gook, right? I mean, that don't make any sense at all. Yeah, let's see that happen. How do you stay with God when you don't have a place? And how could they believe something like that? And you know what? Or how could Abraham believe something like that? And you know, the writer here tells us, if you look down at verse 10, it says, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations. That's not a tent. That's not a temporary thing. That's permanent. He was looking for the city that has foundations whose architect and builder is God's. In other words, he saw things that nobody else could see. And by the way, God came through and fulfilled it all because here was a man by faith who stayed when he didn't have a place. Everybody else said it was crazy. You know, back in the 1950s, a fellow by the name of Walt Disney uh, came into possession. He actually bought 47 square miles in central Florida around a little podunk town called Orlando. Florida. Nobody had ever heard of Orlando. It was a nothing. It was a bunch of swamp around there. And he began dreaming and making plans for five different parks around there where people could come. He called it the Magic Kingdom. That was as a title he came up with, the Magic Kingdom. And they started working towards. They started building the Magic Kingdom. Walt Disney died in. Um, uh, 1966, the first Disney World Park there in Orlando opened in 1971. And Mrs. Disney was there, and uh, somebody said to her, uh, you know, it really is a shame that Walt didn't live to see all this. 
And she said, oh, he did. <laughs> the reason we're here today is because he saw it all. Is it possible that, that somebody for, for business reasons or, or for uh, just entertainment possibilities can see the future and if somebody like that can see what is going to come and then can can believe it and work toward it why can't a person of faith take God at his word I mean what God says even though I don't have it yet can I take the promise of God and believe it and then live it out as if I did have it is it possible for me to see what God is doing when I can't see it to stay with God when I got no place. In the sixth chapter of John's gospel, the Lord Jesus, at the first part of that chapter, he is at the pinnacle of his ministry. He, uh, he's with a whole bunch of people up near Sea of Galilee, and he takes five barley loaves and two fishes, and he feeds 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. There might have been 20, 25,000 people there. And those disciples are looking at that and going, man, we got them now. We got them right here in our hands. We're going to have us a kingdom. We're going to get rid of those Romans. We're going to do all. I mean, they had all of these visions. And Jesus started talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. <laughs> Let me tell you about this bread. Let me tell you about this cup. You're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And man, people were going like, well, man, I can't handle that. <laughs> that don't sound right. That's crazy. That sounds like cannibalism and a whole bunch of other stuff. He's talking about dying and all this. Messiah don't do that. And he started going through all this stuff. And when you get down to the 66th verse in John chapter 6, John 6, 66, interestingly enough, it says that from that day on, many of his disciples didn't go with him anymore. They didn't follow him anymore. It's talking about all those who are around him. I mean, they just quit following because it's too weird. It's too crazy. And we can't handle this stuff. I mean, he's, starting, he's calling us to a radical commitment. That's not what we're in for. We're going to get something to eat. Yeah, we're into that. <laughs> but if we're talking about, you know, just, uh, you know, like serving and following, you know, I'm not into that kind of stuff. That's not, that's not my Christianity. And then Jesus turned to the 12 and he said, what about you guys? You guys going to go too? Scripture said that Peter spoke up for the 12 and said, Well, Jesus, if we go, and I can almost hear Peter saying, Jesus, you had these people eating out of the palm of your hand. Why did you have to start talking about radical discipleship and sacrifice and giving them? Why couldn't we just, we just take them on, right? I mean, you had them in the palm of your hand. But are you going to leave, he says. Well, where are we going to go? Peter says, you're the only one that's got life. I mean, you had them right in the palm of your hand, and we'd love to, but Jesus, we're going to keep going with you. How do you stay with God when you don't have a place to stay? And then, you know, what's really interesting about that is, as you go on about another six months and you come to the final uh, time that Jesus is now in Jerusalem with his disciples and it's the Passover and he sets down and he, he lays out my body and my blood. I think he's trying to help them to understand everything that he had been talking about since John chapter 6 and 
And then he tells them that he's going to die. And it says, man, they're just really, they're tore up. They're, they're brokenhearted. And then in John 14, 1, watch this. He says, let not your heart be troubled. That is, all this, don't let this trip you up. All this stuff about sacrifice and dying and all this, don't let all this trip you up. Don't, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Watch, he's calling them to faith. The word there, the Greek word is pistuo. You faith God, faith me. And then he says this, verse 3, John 14. In my Father's house are many mansions or rooms. I'm going to prepare a, what, place for you. You don't have it yet, but I'm going. And if I go, I'm going to come again. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to forsake you or leave you in any way. I mean, how do you stay with God when you don't have a place, it is the promise of God that says, no matter where you are, what's going on in your life, or what's happening to you right now, I'm not leaving you alone. I am with you, and if you'll just trust me, I've got a place for you. I've got something for you. I'm going to lead you and guide you, but I'm going to provide for you everything you need. That is the promise of God. And in a world in which we live, they look at people like you and me who do that, and they say, that's crazy. But, beloved, it's not crazy. It's faith. It's faith. To go with God when you don't know where. To stay with God when you don't have a place. And the last thing here is to hold on to God when everything's hopeless when everything's hopeless. This writer of Hebrews here kind of concludes uh, this part with Abraham talking about Sarah. He says, by faith in verse 11, when she was unable to have children. Now, why was she unable to have children? Well, Abraham was 75 years old when he got to the land of Canaan. He had left that great metropolitan city in Ur, and now he's in the land of Canaan, 75 years old. She's one year younger. She's 70 four years old, and God says, I'm going to give you this land, and I'm going to give it to you and to all your descendants, and man, that's great. That's a wonderful promise and everything. Problem is, we don't have no kids. We don't have no kids, and time is running out. You know, the biological clock has not just, you know, is not just ticking. It's stopped ticking, right? <laughs> I mean, any 75-year-olds in here thinking, hey, you know, maybe next year we'll have another child. No, no. <laughs> No, babies are for young people. In fact, you know, he mentions here uh, down in verse 11 that uh, therefore from one man, and this is Abraham, in fact, one as good as dead. What he's talking about here is biology. Biology. You know, biology says, you know, when you're young, you have babies. When you get old, you don't have no babies. I mean, I don't have to, I, don't, I guess I don't have to dis to tell everybody about that. And by the way, let me just pause right here and tell you that science is not anti-God. God created this universe, and he put in it a bunch of physical laws. You know what scientists do? They just discover the physical laws that God already put in it. They don't make up this stuff. God did it. God is not anti-science, and science is not anti-God. Now, there are scientists who are anti-God, I'll, I'll grant you that. But science itself is just discovering the things that God has already put in place. And what God had put in place here, biology, and by the way, biology cannot be, is not a matter of choice, by the way. Let me go ahead and say that. Um, biology here... <laughs> 
said, uh, it's too late for you guys, right? I mean, he's 75, he's 74. But God said, okay, I'm going to give you a son. And so they're cool with that. And so they wait a year. Ten years. Now he's 85, she's 84. If they weren't past their prime ten years before, now they really are. Wait another 15 years. Now Abraham is 100 and she's 99. And biology says that is never going to happen. <laughs> By the way, can I just pause again right here? I'm sorry I, I paused so many times, but... Um, let me just point out to you that at the age of 75, God was just getting started with Abraham. Anybody in here ever said, you know, I'm just too old to do anything for God. I'm too old for God to use me. I'm past my prime. You know, when I was younger, I could do all these things. But now, I'm just too old for God to use me. You know what you're saying when you say, I'm too old for God to use me? You're saying, I don't believe the Bible. <laughs> I don't believe that God can do anything that he says he's going to do. Beloved, don't ever say you're too old. Don't ever say that anything is impossible with God. Don't ever say that, that God can't do something with you. I mean, have you ever looked at your situation? You said it's hopeless. Let me tell you, beloved, hopeless is not a word that God uses. Everybody has laughed at you maybe and said, there's no way. But with God, there's no hopeless. With God, there's no impossible. This is exactly what Mary said. You know, when God, the Lord, came to her and said, hey, you're going to have a baby. His name's going to be Jesus. He's going to save the world. Nothing's impossible with God, she said. I know biology, but, I'm, uh, but I also know God. And God trumps biology. Let me... Uh, let me just mention that this is the way it goes with God. There's nothing in your life today that is impossible when it comes to God. You know, I, I just mentioned earlier that, you know, the night before Jesus was crucified, they were in that upper room and Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Well, fast forward now 24 hours and the, Jesus has been beaten. Jesus has been crucified. And now just picture yourself. You're there with a fellow by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. And what does he do? He goes and gets the body of Jesus, and he's got a tomb, and he lays that body. You're there with him. Y'all prepare the body. The dude's dead. And, and what does biology tell us? When you're dead, you're dead, right? I mean, that's just the reality. Dead is dead. And when you're dead, that's it. It's over. There's no more life, right? So you prepare the body, put him in the grave. You roll that stone in front of the tomb, and that's it. You go home because it's all over. And all the stuff that Jesus had been talking about, it's all over. It's done. And then Sunday morning, and the stone rolled away, and the tomb was empty. And Jesus was alive. And beloved, let me tell you something. You know what the Bible teaches? The same power of God it caused Jesus to rise from the dead. That same power is available in the life of every child of God. If God can raise the dead, he can take care of whatever problem's going on in your life. 
He can take care of whatever impossibility, whatever hopeless situation, whatever is going on with you. I think if he's got the power to raise the dead, he's got the power to do something in your life. That's not crazy, beloved. That's faith. That's faith. How do you hold on to God when everything looks impossible? Well, you just look at that empty tomb and you worship the living Savior. And you just hold on. It's not crazy. <laughs> it's faith. In, um, in 1860, uh, a fellow by the name of Charles Blondin stretched a cable across the um, uh, Niagara Falls. And then he started selling 25-cent tickets. I'm going to walk across Niagara Falls on that tightrope on that cable, and thousands of people came, and over, over a number of days, he walked back and forth across that thing. He would sit down in the middle of that cable and cook his breakfast, you know, and, and uh, he went over uh, to the Canadian side one time, brought back a camera and stopped and took everybody's picture on the American side. One time, he got a wheelbarrow, and he rode that wheelbarrow walking across that cable across Niagara Falls. He put a bunch of feed sacks in it, 300 pounds of feed in that wheelbarrow, and he walked back and forth across that cable in Niagara Falls. He comes over to the American side, and all the people are gathered there, and he says, how many of y'all believe that I could walk across Niagara Falls with somebody, with a person in this wheelbarrow? How many of you believe that? Every hand went up, because they'd seen it. All right, who wants to volunteer and come get in a wheelbarrow? Every hand went down. <laughs> You know, his, uh, his manager actually was the one that ultimately had to get in a wheelbarrow and go across because nobody else. See, it's one thing to believe. It's something else to get in a wheelbarrow. You understand what I'm saying? It's one thing to believe in God, to say, oh, yeah, I believe, oh, sure. It's something else to get in God's wheelbarrow. I want to ask you that question this morning. Have you ever gotten in God's wheelbarrow? Are you in it right now? What's going on in your life that makes absolutely no sense to a world, the world in which we live, except God, except faith? What's happening in your life that everybody's looking at and going, that's crazy. Nobody does that. Nobody believes that. You can't. No, it's not crazy. It's faith. Beloved, faith is going with God when you don't know where. It's staying with God when you don't have a place. You understand? Faith is holding on to God when, when you're at the end and everything's hopeless except God. That's faith. And I'll tell you, beloved, the Lord Jesus has never lost anybody out of his wheelbarrow. And if you'll get in this wheelbarrow by faith, you'll find out there's nothing impossible with him in your life. Father, I pray that you would help us today, Lord, to be individuals, people of faith, Lord, to not just believe it or think it, but to get in a wheelbarrow. Father, there's somebody here today that for the first time needs to step out by faith and just get in that wheelbarrow to give up on self, 
of wanting to control it all or know it or have the map or whatever, can't believe because I don't have everything laid out before me. And today, I'm just going to get in God's wheelbarrow. And Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with you even though I don't know where. And I'm going to stay with you even though I don't have a place. And, and I'm going to hold on even when it looks hopeless. Lord, may our response to you today be a response of faith, I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.